I know. Everybody's going to panic at the back and be like, I'm still standing in line. Need to get my dessert. Need to get my drink. But it's 7.20. Hey, John, we got a little bit of music still playing up here. Thank you. Uh, I, I want to I try and move us along because we got lots to get to. It's a Sunday night. I know for myself, kids got school tomorrow. There's a whole bunch of things going on, so I don't want to keep us here until midnight, although I love seeing people smiling and having a good time. So I hate to interrupt, but I do want to move us along, and I'll be the butt end of a couple jokes, I'm sure, by the guy in the cowboy hat, but either way. Um, first, I want to do, I want to bring up the, the staff from uh, Gold Horse the, that have given us this excellent meal tonight, or if they're just going to stand in the back, they can wave their arm and give them a round of applause. And then you got Nicole and Jen in the corner as well. They're the group that makes sure all of us yahoos get through this thing and get fed and watered and everything else. So Now, while people are slowly working their way through the end of it, I, I, want, I, I think I've been to every table, I think, I hope. Um, that means everybody has one person at least with the link on their phone. And essentially, as we get going here, you're going to have three speakers. Vance Crow laid down the challenge that he thinks he's going to have more disagreeable things to say to all of you. And then my challenge to you is simple. Every time you hear something you disagree with, tell the person or open the, the link and put it in a question so that we can discuss it. Because I figure where there's disagreement, maybe there's some, some gold nuggets in there and can lead us in an interesting discussion for the second half. Because the second half hopefully will be led by you participating in the roundtable. Now, I was going to let off with Trudeau saying, saying prayer, and I, I chuckled about that, and I think there was a couple eyebrow raises. And then I, I, we started live streaming at a, a quarter to seven, and I felt like Premier Kenny, you know, being about an hour late to his addresses. And, you know, there's a couple <laughs> Alberta government folk in here tonight, so maybe I've been rubbing too much shoulders with them. Who knows? Either way, we found a way to get her started here. And so tonight is about the rural-urban divide. I can tell you a whole bunch of lovely stats and everything else. It's been a problem that's been around, or maybe just something to stare at for a long time. I love telling the story about the Dirty 30s in Saskatoon. I read a book where, you know, in the Dirty 30s and food was in short supply, they gave them all garden plots. Wouldn't that be something today? You go from, you know, 90-some percent, even in the United States, back at the beginning of the 1800s, living in rural to the 1900s, it's 60%. And by now, we kind of get where we're at. We're 81% of Canada lives in what you consider urban settings. And so that's where the discussion starts. We're going to see what comes out of these three individuals and see what you guys want to hear and what you disagree with, and we'll see where it goes. But it's a very real thing. It's bled into a lot of different things, not just politics and different legislation and everything else, but a lot of just disagreements had by people living in different places. So our first speaker is Vance Crow. He is from St. Louis, Missouri, a communication consultant that has worked for uh, corporations and international organizations around the world. He's spoken before to more than 150,000 people, answering questions about some of the most sophisticated and controversial technologies in the modern age. He helps organizations realize why the general public doesn't agree with their perspective, and offers new ways to communicate effectively, resolve disagreements, and build rapport with critics and stakeholders. 
Finally, he hosts the Influential Vance Crow podcast and become, has become a good friend of mine through a lot of different uh, conversations. So give it up for Vance Crow. 12 minutes yeah. <clears throat> so I don't know if you can tell from my accent, but I am from St. Louis, Missouri. And when I was telling my friends that I was coming up here, I was just like, oh, I'm going up to, you know, Saskatchewan and Alberta. And they're like, but really, where, where exactly are you going? And so we, I said Lloydminster. And I actually hadn't looked it up. One of my friends pulls out his phone and goes and looks it up. And he goes, oh, my God, Vance, that's like uh, in Game of Thrones when they go north of the wall. And so I guess that makes everybody here wildlings, and I, I think that's pretty accurate considering I got to go to my first U7 hockey game, and that was a shocking experience. I had never seen anything like that. But the reason I'm here is because I've had a voice in my head that has been saying, like, pay attention to what's going on in Canada. And it is such a strong voice that it has prompted me to actually pretty much abandon all of the other podcasts I was listening to and pay deep attention to it. I spend many hours, just like you, listening to Sean on his podcast, listening to Twos, because what has gone on in your country is really bizarre. And it's something very important to look at because it's not going to change. Uh, the, the storm is coming. And so what I thought I would do is start off by talking about my, my background. Like, how did I get into agriculture? Because it's not a natural fit that I would be here. I'm not a Canadian. I'm not a farmer. I don't work in the oil field. So what do I have to say to people from another country, the wildlings, about you know, the cultural problem that you're facing? Well, what, the way I got into this was that I ended up uh, getting an opportunity to uh, interview with Monsanto. And uh, they were hiring for the director of millennial engagement. And for anybody in here that doesn't know who Monsanto is, they were an ag company that was considered one of the most evil in the world. And I was one of the people that definitely thought that they were evil. And so I decided to take the opportunity to interview for the job because I thought, well, you know, hey, who doesn't want to see inside of North Korea? So I go in and I do this job interview and uh, it is a really intense situation because they are trying to find somebody that can go out and talk to the general public that believes GMOs and pesticides and modern ag is evil. And so whoever they're going to hire for this, they do seven hours of interviews. And I don't know if any of you have ever interviewed for a job that you don't want, but that is about as much fun as you can have. Because they would ask me questions like, uh, what's your preferred management style? And I would say, I like to get into work at 7 a.m. Why are you causing farmers in India to commit suicide? You know, why are you poisoning the Gulf of Mexico? Why are you forcing GMOs on farmers? And I, this was my perspective. This is where I came from. But I was intensely asking them these questions. So we get all the way done with seven hours of interviews. And the woman that had arranged this comes back into the room and she sits at the table across from me. And she goes, okay, we've now done all the interview questions. Do you have any questions for me? I said, yeah, I got a question for you. you uh, you're going to have somebody go out and represent your company to people that believe that you are actually evil. How are you going to train somebody to do this job? And she said something that changed my life. She said, you know, whoever we hire for this job, we're going to train them specific to what they know and what they're good at. And since you've been so curious, I think the way that we would train you is we would line up a list of 50 people from throughout the company, geneticists, chemists, farmers, breeders, attorneys, and have you sit down and talk with each one of those people for an hour. 
And after you're done with that list of 50 people, then you'll sit down with me and we'll talk and we'll figure out what you do and don't know. And then I'll write another list of 50 people and you'll go talk with them. And right at that moment, a light bulb goes off in my head and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the opportunity of a lifetime because these people don't realize that I can run around here and ask questions and find out really what's going on here. And I'm going to discover one of two things. I'm either going to discover that they are as evil as everybody thinks that they are, in which case I'm going to go write the greatest tell-all book of all time, or I'm going to discover that this, you have just uncovered maybe the most important communications problem at that point in the history of modern civilization, which is we're growing food more bountifully than we ever have before, and yet people are afraid and angry about how their food is being grown. And so this thrust me into a world where I started to think about very deeply, how do you understand? How is it that people know what they know? Why is it that people believe this? And then if you want to change culture, what is it that you have to do in order to be able to change the way people think about it? Not a one or two people, but a massive amount of people. Which, as I think about it, is actually the problem that you are facing right now. If you are to change the inevitability, the, the direction that everything is heading in, you are literally going to have to change culture. So the step one that I think everybody has to do is to make sure that you are defining the problem properly. You know, when I think about the rural-urban divide, I think about the fact that when you define what is urban, it's 100 people per square mile. I don't have any idea what that is in kilometers, but it's, if you think about it, Lloydminster is way beyond that. Lloydminster is actually defined as an urban environment. But nobody here thinks, oh, it's Lloydminster and the way the people here are thinking that it's dominating our culture. So really, you need to think maybe a little bit more deeply about what is actually going on? Is it rural versus urban? Or is it something else? And I would propose that it's actually two different camps of people. People living in the world of atoms and people living in the world of ideas. People living in the world of atoms are the people that have to go build and dig and trench and make things happen in the real world in order to make money. But people mostly living in the city, now because of the digital age and the way that we've transformed our society, there are a whole bunch of people, millions, hundreds of millions of people, that now don't actually work in the world of atoms, they work in the world of ideas. And in the world of ideas, what is possible, how quickly things can change, what matters most is very different than the world of atoms. And so when people get engaged in the world of ideas, they do it not always by choice. Many people moved off of farms because there was no more farmland. There was no way to be profitable on farms. And other people moved there because they saw the opportunity in cities. And as much as people living far away from cities might not like them, you know, it might not be the most comfortable place. It's important to understand what happens in a city that's so beneficial to the individual. And it turns out if you go research cities, if you double the population of a city, all these things start increasing by 15%. It's called the 15% rule. So if you go from 1,000 people to 2,000 people, then all of a sudden the median salary goes up by 15%. You go from 100,000 to 200,000, same thing. But it isn't just salaries that go up. Also, things like number of patents filed go up. Number of uh, crime goes up. Also, things like how fast people walk goes up. 
This is so true that you can go to any city in the entire world, you can track how fast the average person is walking 100 meters, and you can determine within 10,000 people how dense that city is, based just on how fast they walk. Now, this is important to understand because it's actually representing that people living in the world of ideas among really highly dense populations are actually seeing and experiencing the world at a different time rate than you are. And this time rate is actually all around them, right? It's in uh, how long their day is because you have lights on at night. It's in the fact that they don't ever actually have to experience the weather because they can wake up in the morning, go to their car in a heated garage, drive to work, get out, only work in that building, or maybe just stay inside all day. So their experience of how fast time is moving and how much time there is and what does it take to build things is completely different than the people in this room. Now, this is important to understand because if you're going to change culture, you must deeply understand your adversaries. And it's one thing to say, well, I understand them. Look how dumb they are. Look how crazy they are. But the truth of the matter, if you want to change people, you have to understand them really deeply. And one of the things that I think might help is to understand that many people that are living in cities, the changes that have happened to them, they didn't have any control over. You know, putting people on top of each other, so many, in, you know, with giant skyscrapers or pushing people together in houses means that they can't be the sort of alpha male that was needed to be able to tame the wilderness that was out here or to be able to feed cattle out here, right? If you put a bunch of giant alpha males and the women that love them in cities, you have all kinds of problems, which is, results in the fact that the people are actually physically different. Now, this is something that can be a little controversial. And when Sean said he was going to live stream, I was like, oh, man, this could get me in trouble. But there's a truth, truism about when you domesticate animals. You know, if you go to domesticate wolves or, or foxes in order to get their pelts, you start selecting for the nicest foxes. You do that for just three generations. And all of a sudden, the fox's ears no longer point straight. Their fur becomes much different texture. It's completely worthless. Because if those foxes become too tame, too docile, the physical nature of their bodies change. And this is actually happening with people living in the cities because they don't need all of this testosterone, all of this stuff that makes them rugged individuals. And that is actually making them different from you. Not bad, not wrong, different. And so what I would say is, when you look at this challenge of interacting with people that are so different from you, you really only have three options. You have loyalty, voice, and exit. Loyalty is you can look at the problems in your country or in your province or in your city and you can say, I'm just going to go along to get along. Hey, this is going to work out. It'll eventually go away on its own. If you're a listener of the Sean Newman podcast, loyalty is not the option for you. This is not why you're here. But the other two options, voice and exit, are worth exploring because both have pros and they have cons, and it's really important that you understand them. So voice is the idea that you can actually put forward your disagreement, your different way of looking at things. A perfect example of voice is twos or quick, right? They're sitting there trying to be persuasive. They're writing things in a different way. They're trying to persuade and change people based on what they say. Now, the problem with voice is if you keep voicing your opinions and nothing changes, well, then you're actually really just loyal. 
But the other problem with voice is if you rile people up too much, you get them going too much and you rile people up, then eventually they can turn into a mob. And a mob is the most dangerous and uncontrollable force on earth. I believe the most dangerous thing that humans can get involved in is a mob, and we've seen that. And we see how close voicing your opinion being different can go from being a very positive thing to quickly morphing into a mob really quickly. Now, finally, the third option, exit. Now, exit can look very different, right? If you're wealthy enough or you have the opportunity, you can just pick up, sell your house, move to another place. Now, I don't have any idea where you would go, but this is one of your options. The other option with exit is to get everyone that you know around you to decide, hey, we're going to leave. We're going to break away. Now, as a visitor to your country, I have no polarity. I have no advice for you on this whatsoever, only to say that on the other side of the exit door is blood. And it is a very serious thing to decide that you are going to leave. Because if you decide to leave and the other people don't want you to, real conflict will happen. And when I talk about that voice that has been pounding in my head for months, in particular ever since I knew I was coming to do this with Sean, I feel deeply compelled to say, I know you must do something. I know that you can't continue on this track, but you must look very closely at the cost of each of these options and consider that really the only thing that will keep you from joining a mob is the fact that every single person in this room has a little voice inside of you. You have a little voice that's going to tell you, no, this is getting too excited. We need to slow down. No, there's a wise way to handle this. No, I'm not going to join that thing, or I'm going to be a voice of reason to slow things down. I don't know what you should do to tame the conflict between rural and urban, but the thing that will keep you from becoming the most dangerous force on earth is the little voice inside of each one of your minds. And so I am so glad to have come here. I'm, I am excited to be on the platform, on the stage with you guys. But just know that in the future, every person that came here is here for a reason. Every single one of you is important in whatever the next stages you do. And uh, I think that that is an incredibly powerful thing. And I'm so glad every one of you came out tonight. Thank you. Well, if you don't know who Vance is, you certainly got a feel for him now. The next up is Stephen Barber. He's a mechanical engineer, and he's the owner and operator of Upstream Data, which is a company focused on monetizing stranded energy through Bitcoin mining. And is also an advocate for, wait for, more carbon emissions. So give it up for Mr. Steve Barber. Thank you, Sean. Um, well, if this was a charisma sandwich, I'd be the dull guy in between these two speakers. So uh, thanks for having me. Um, I'm very proud to be building a uh, business here in Lloydminster, uh, Upstream Data. We're about 40-ish strong and hopefully uh, bigger into the future as we, I, I plan on continuing to invest in this community. I think I got one staff member here. Is that just the one, Brett? Say hi to Brett over there. Um, so I guess uh, my take on this topic, uh, uh, this rural-urban divide, 
Uh, I was thinking a lot about it on the way up here from Calgary. I, I was living in Lloyd for many years, but I since moved to Calgary to be closer to my wife's family to take care of her uh, newborn. And I was thinking about um, more or less how it's, I, I see it as, as a, a, there's a natural aspect to this division. It's like a division of labor. And so it's sort of, I'll reiterate what Vance was saying that, you know, you have uh, a need, I mean, rural communities sort of sprout up around uh, the need to produce from the environment, uh, oil and gas around here, agriculture, uh, mining. That's where you generally see rural communities. It's around the resource base. And so this is a natural need. And then you also have the cities, the urban areas, which are very different. It's where they're the consumers of the, of the natural goods that we produce. So rural, rural communities are general net producers and the surpluses go to the cities who consume and the manufacturers in the cities. And, and like Vance was saying, a lot of the idea creation congregates in cities uh, for a variety of reasons, mostly related to efficiency. It's just more people in the area. You know, he said more patents are generated. <clears throat> uh, logistics, shipping, all these things that cities bring to the table, that's why they exist. So my first point is an observation that there is a natural division of labor. It's not, it's not this like, it's not necessarily a struggle. It's, it should be mutual. Just like in any division of labor uh, is mutual. I mean, I was trying to think of how to relate that on a micro scale and within the family even, we have a division of labor. My, me and my wife have a division of labor. Uh, part of our marriage contract unofficially was she would do all the laundry. I, I do all the yard work. And it's a mutual relationship, right? Like it's not, we're not at each other's throats because we've decided to have a difference uh, in duties in the, in the household. So if you look at the urban and rural areas, really it's a mutual relationship. But I think that there is a, what I, call, what I was thinking and conceptualizing as a unnatural divide amongst rural and urban communities in today's age. Uh, so there's the natural division of labor, which is an efficient thing, it's a mutual thing. And then there's the unnatural division uh, between these two communities. And, and what is that about? Uh, just some examples of what I would consider unnatural is the policies that are being, you know, uh, force-fed into society today are very destructive for one side of this relationship. For example, carbon tax. Uh, carbon tax is discriminatory against rural communities because rural communities need to use fuel. Uh, farmers need fuel. Uh, the mining communities, oil and gas communities need to use fuel. These carbon taxes hurt uh, the rural communities a lot more than they do city folk because city folk, I mean, I live in Calgary. I'm in this deep suburb, so I can't really ride my bicycle everywhere. But if you're in the midst of the city, you can, and you're not consuming fuel. You're not paying as much tax on this stuff. So you have this unnatural divide generated by politics that is dividing the communities and polarizing things. So I was trying to figure out a way to sort of simplify and, and relate this to people. So I was thinking about like the story of the like the golden goose, and I don't know if I got this right because I was googling on the way up here, to make sure I remembered the story right. But because I think there's a few versions, one's like the Brothers Grimm, and that's sort of like this weird, nasty version of it. But the, I think the traditional story of the golden goose is you know a farmer uh, either comes across or him and his wife see a golden goose in the market, they buy it, and they this golden goose, of course, uh, it lays golden eggs. That's awesome. Uh, I don't think he knew that at the time. It's just a golden feathered goose. 
and it starts laying golden eggs. And uh, the story goes on, and eventually the, the, the goose stops laying its daily egg, and the farmer gets upset, and he's getting greedy. So he, you know, they, the, for whatever reason, maybe the goose isn't happy, it stops laying eggs, and he, he kills it. He slaughters it for some reason, thinking that, uh, I think the story goes, he thinks he can get the eggs inside it. It's, it's just not laying them, or there's gold inside the goose, but sure enough, there's not. And the moral of that story, the traditional story, is uh, don't kill the golden goose. Like that's, that, that, we've all heard that saying. And it's a story about greed. Don't get too greedy. Well, I, I wanna try to tie this all back by saying you should kill the golden goose if it, if it comes into your life, and this is why. Um, I think the unnatural phenomenon that's happening in the world today uh, is basically a golden goose that exists. It's, uh, it's, the government's, it's the government's central bank. They have a golden goose. And it's creating this division. And I'm, one way to think about it, uh, maybe conceptualize, you know, there's a lot of farmers in the room. Who, who, who is a farmer here? Like show of hands, family, family tied to farming, a lot of people. You know, in a, in a natural, because uh, I, I started talking about a natural setting and a nat natural market. In a natural setting, you know, there's a, think about your own farm and your own community around it. It's synergistic. It's mutual. Everyone's generally making, you know, over time, it, it, there's a balance. Everyone's making about the same kind of return on investment. You know, some people raise cattle, some people plow fields, but overall, there's like a harmony. And there's, there's a beautiful community there. There's a lot of many, many generational farmers in the room, I'm sure, uh, with family land. And what would happen to, if you just think of a figurative farming community that's been around for generations and it's, it's, it's all synergistic and mutual, and all of a sudden there's a, a golden goose shows up uh, and it, in your yard. I mean, what would you do? And I think about it like I know what I would probably do as a normal human being. First, I wouldn't tell anyone. I would, I would capture that thing. I wouldn't tell anyone. I'd be like, this is pretty cool. I don't want to tell anyone because, you know, people get greedy and they might come take it and the greed would take over. And I'd go do the golden, the, the, the egg thing and I would, I would, I would uh, make a lot of money. The, the problem with this, though, that I think the traditional story doesn't touch on is that as, this, as, as you're making all this money secretly selling your gold eggs, you know, you're going to upgrade your farm. You're going to... Um, you're going to make your farm more productive. Like we said, it's been a generational thing. You're very proud of it. Your name's attached to it. You're going to start out-competing your neighbors with a golden goose. And this golden goose is basically a subsidy. You have this free money subsidy coming into your life, and it is driving you to be more productive, which is great for you, but it's actually quite bad for your neighbors because the kind of thing it does from an economic standpoint is your neighbors, you start to take the, the hired hands because you can afford them, right? Uh, where before you're sort of sharing the work, you know, um, no one's at any huge competitive advantage. All of a sudden you have a huge competitive advantage and you start taking, you know, all the best people uh, to hire on your farm. You have all the best equipment. You become the most productive. Your, your, your neighbors, your community becomes impoverished because the best hands are going to work for you. You're paying them the most. Um, there's no longer this balance of opportunity amongst you and amongst your your community. And so what happens is your community deteriorates. All the best people go to you. You become the, you become the most productive and you start buying up your adjacent farms. And that, that would be, in my head, a natural thing, occurrence if you had this infinite supply of money, this infinite um, 
gold, this golden goose. And so, I mean, if my wife was here, she, she couldn't make it up, but she would laugh and roll her eyes because I can always find a way to turn every problem back to the same cause, which is money printing. And so that, that's what I wanted to sort of iterate on is this, there is a one entity out there with a golden goose, it's the government. And they, they print infinite money. And the, the, the unnatural aspect of this urban-rural divide is that most of the subsidies, the golden eggs that the government lays, goes to urban initiatives. A lot of it is like, in, my, in our own industry, you know, I look at all these clean tech companies. You know, it's great on paper, they're trying to clean up the environment, whatever. Uh, but you know that they're taking labor away from the market. It's driving up the costs of everything else, and and the people, the natural, I just call it natural businesses in the market who serve a customer and serve a need, have to fight and win against subsidized businesses, and and a lot of these end up in cities, and and it draws. And here's the the thing that really matters: it draws people to the cities. Vance said that I didn't know the stat. It's very interesting that I think you said back in the day Canada or somewhere was 90% rural, 10% urban, and it's shifted where it's now, what'd you say, 80% cities in Canada, 80% urban. Well, this is urban voters managing rural lives artificially because there shouldn't be the people in those places in the first place. They should be in rural areas. These subsidies, the point I'm trying to make is this unnatural phenomenon where government subsidies through their golden goose is drawing people into places they shouldn't be. And one example, like, I'll sort of end off with this, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if you can tell from my accent, but I'm a Newfie. I don't know if you knew that. Most people don't, um, unless I start drinking a lot. But uh, so I came from Newfoundland, and, like, when I, when I moved to Lloyd and was given an opportunity to work in oil field with Husky, you know, I was probably a liberal back then. Uh, I probably would have identified as one. I have since, um, you know, uh, gr growing a business here, and being surrounded in a rural environment have shifted, you know, in, in probably your view, improved my views, and I'm now more conservative. But I think the point is like one, one thing you can, I've, I've observed from that is really I'm a product of my environment. Like my parents were, as many people in Newfoundland, unfortunately, are subsidized by government jobs. There's a lot of government services in Newfoundland. And, and one problem that has is it brings, and it's sort of weird to say it, but it, I, I see it as a problem. It, it keeps people there that the, the actual natural economy there can't sustain. So it, it can only sustain it with outside subsidies. And it, I think that's a problem for the province because there's not a lot of opportunity because it's, it's almost like an oversupply of, uh, of, of people for limited opportunities and they should be elsewhere in the, in the economy. And so that's just one example I see of this whole, this whole, uh, subsidy phenomenon skewing markets. It basically misallocates capital and creates this division, uh, unnatural division in the communities, which, you know, in our, in our, I think in a lot of your views, you're, and you see it like if you look at American politics too, it's pretty much everywhere. You have other people in other places influencing your lives with their votes uh, when really why, why it doesn't really make sense. There's too many people in say urban areas influencing rural area uh, policy. And yeah, I, I sort of, I guess my message was, uh, it's, I think it has to do with, with these perpetual subsidies which are sourced from money printing. So my message is if you, if you see a golden goose in your community, uh, you should kill it.
Give him a round of applause again, folks. Steve Barber. <laughs> I always like when the quiet, somewhat awkward guy makes fun of himself to just like send it off, right? Like he got the, the contrast. It's, it's awesome. And Steve, I think he did excellent. The last uh, speaker for tonight is probably from Tufnell, Saskatchewan. It's funny. I was, me and him were just talking, you know, like, I feel like we didn't, we were like literally on the stage together not that long ago, which isn't that far back. It was in November. Um, and so he's proudly from Tufnell. He went from Snapchat handle to YouTube star with 11 million views and over 100,000 subscribers. And I was joking that I think my dad's a bigger fan than I am, right? Like he's got this weird way of, of being a, a hit with the young generation and with the older generation. So please give it up for a quick dick, McDick. Oh boy, this is the first time I've been on stage without a beer in my hand, <laughs> cussing and swearing for quite some time. Thanks everybody for coming out here tonight. Uh, it's really weird, you know, because I thought the whole goal when we were doing this was, was some kind of a competition, wasn't it, Vance, Steve, whoever disagreed with the most of the things that we said was going to be the winner? Well, they put me last, <laughs> so that makes it pretty easy. And, uh, hell, I've killed a lot of geese, but we usually eat them afterwards kind of thing. And they were just chitting. They didn't have any gold in them or anything. And Vance made some pretty good points. But uh, I, uh, I, I think the, the biggest reason that I wanted to be up here and, and chat with you folks tonight is because I'd, uh, I'd love to say some things that you disagree with. Because, first of all, I'm going to win this fucking competition. <laughs> and second of all, it's uh, hopefully going to lead to some kind of a point. So let me start off with, uh, with five statements. The only way that we will get out of the uh, current climate crisis that we're in is by uh, putting a levy charge on carbon. Justin Trudeau is not the, only the most masculine guy I've ever seen in my entire life. He's also the best leader Canada has ever had. There's no business case whatsoever for liquid natural gas marketed globally from Canada to the rest of the world. I trust that the government is responsibly managing my tax dollars and spending them accordingly. How are we doing so far, guys? Huh? Agriculture affects oceans. Chemicals hurt habitats and species. They also decrease oxygen levels. I said five statements that I said to you folks. Four of them I made up. One of them was on a school billboard in Outlook, Saskatchewan. Do you know which one it was? Number five. How did it make you feel when I said it? The same as the rest of them actually made me feel a lot worse. When I saw that billboard, of the SunWest School Division and Outlook, I felt rage like we typically do when we go on to social media, like I hadn't felt in a long time because I felt that I had been abandoned by a rural community. So I want to do a little more show of hand stuff in here because you all matter to me when I talk to you. 
So like, get involved with me here. By a show of hands, how many people here in this room tonight from Lloydminster believe that they are a part of rural Alberta or Saskatchewan? How many believe they are a part of urban Saskatchewan or Alberta? Okay, how many people live within the city of Lloydminster? Did you go to the grocery store tonight on your way home? Sorry, last night. Tonight we were eating here. And Sean, thank you for taking salmon off the menu. We're be farmers. Did you go to the grocery store last couple of nights? Phone up your spouse. Be like, I'm going to rip down and pick up some avocados and we'll have some avocado and toast, maybe a little bit of beef or something. Did that happen? Does that, uh, does that still make you feel like you're a part of rural Saskatchewan or Alberta? Does it? What about anybody that, uh, that lives on a farm? Who lives directly on a farm? Same show of hands. Anybody bring their kids into town to a daycare? Anyone? Anybody who lives in town of Lloydminster that showed their hands that said they were a part of urban Saskatchewan or Alberta, bring their kids into town to daycare? Take them to daycare? To go to work? Anybody? Do we just have cowards or nobody does it? There's no daycares in Lloydminster. This town is an anomaly. It's the point I'm trying to make here is, is when, when do we draw the line? When do we draw the line between when we feel like we're rural or whether we're urban? I live in the middle of buttfuck nowhere in Saskatchewan. 17 miles to get into the town of Foam Lake, Saskatchewan. And there's a lot of times where I consider myself more of an urban person than I do a rural person because that's where I go for groceries. Still a major center where I depend on a lot of the things that I get. Could I make it somewhere else without going there? Of course I could. I can live off of what we've got on the farm. But isn't it easier to go into town? I think it is. It's way easier. I rip into the grocery store and I can buy an avocado, 95% of which were grown in Mexico and flown here to us instead of trying to grow one in a greenhouse. It's trying, what I'm trying to get at with this sign that I saw at Outlook, I, I've always looked at the world through a lens of Outlook, Saskatchewan, Foam Lake, Saskatchewan, Hillmond, Alberta. These are rural towns. But is a rural town a thing? Sorry, that's what I meant to say, yeah. How many people from Hillmond want to kill me now? Yeah. <laughs> I said it to piss Sean off anyways. We don't know what we're talking about here. It's a big problem for me when I see something in what we call rural towns happening, like what we saw at this school. And I think it's a, a big part of the problem of what we have in the rural-urban divide. Is uh, I, I guess I, I didn't expect what I got here, but a lot of people that I talk to, especially in my area of Foam Lake, take their kids even in off the farm uh, to go to daycare throughout the course of the day so that they can go to their jobs. I've got a couple of family members that live in the city of Calgary, which I think is in Alberta. I think I'm allowed to say that here now. They run around with their kids going to daycare. And from daycare, we start sending our kids to school. And when you see a sign like what you've seen outside of the Outlook School, no matter what anybody tries to cover up to say, oh, there was a loss in, in the translation of the message of what we were teaching the kids at school that led to this billboard, can you tell me what the fuck the message was off the start? Was it in German, French, that the kids couldn't translate it over to what we were really trying to say about agriculture? 
I think one of the bigger problems, I mean, Steve made a great point that uh, th that a lot of divides that we have are, are caused by maybe government policy and subsidies. And th these are these are places that we fall into where different communities are voting for policies that affect us in rural Saskatchewan. Where are we sending our children to be educated and what kind of ed education are they getting? Split in Saskatchewan, last time I checked, is 70% to 30% female to male t-shirts, teachers in the province of Saskatchewan. Where do our teachers come from when they come to our towns? Most of the time they come from a city. Even if they came from somewhere in rural Saskatchewan, rural Alberta, whatever your province might be, they've spent four years in a city. Do you know how long it takes to become detached from a rural community? It's actually less than six weeks. Most studies that I've looked at are anywhere between three to five weeks because all of a sudden, everything is at your fingertips. And what these gentlemen exemplified very greatly as far as I'm concerned is that when something's at your fingertips, all of a sudden, you, just, you, you, you lose respect for it. You lose respect for where it came from. I have family members who I grew up to next on the farm, shitting outside, Processing cattle, butchering, learning what a steak was, learning the two different parts of a T-bone. And, I, and I've, I've lost that part of that family member of mine. They haven't been in the city for that long. I grew up together with them. I lost it. I left the farm and I went and worked oil and gas in northern Alberta for 19 years. And I'm telling you right now, folks, I was not a rural guy anymore. Yeah, I grew up on one. Grew up on a farm, knew horses, knew cattle, knew everything. I knew what was going on, but it was really easy for me to just drive down to the grocery store and not really give a shit where anything was coming from. And all of a sudden, I turned into this guy named Quick Dick who started posting stuff on the internet, and it became important to me where things were coming from. Who knows my character on social media is, is Quick Dick McDick. He's, yeah. Swears lots, cusses lots. Do you find a lot of the shit that he does funny? Yeah? Why? Got, yeah, guy in a cowboy hat saying, fuck Trudeau, fuck the carbon tax. You bunch of fucking lefties and your green policies and your fucking EVs, go fuck yourselves! What does that fix? Nothing. Nothing fixes absolutely nothing. What I do might be a great way for people to watch the internet and have some kind of an outlet of where they can laugh. Laughter, as far as I'm concerned, is the best medicine. But it doesn't fix anything. It doesn't fix the problems that we have. And the most important thing that I wanted to talk to you folks about tonight when I came here is that I've had a revelation throughout the course of this social media character that I've created. Now, I'm not going to change what he does, because to be perfectly honest, I like swearing on the internet. My mom doesn't. Pisses her off most of the time, actually. But the most important thing that I've found that you'll ever do between social media, whether it be Twitter, whether it be Instagram, whether it be Facebook, whether it be anything, is to get outside of the people that make you comfortable like me. I'm standing here asking you to watch less of me. Go find people that you disagree with that are in a city that have a different opinion than you and try and find somewhere 
in where they come from or what they do of what would make them have the opinion that they have. Maybe they've had to administer an naloxone kit to an overdose. Anybody in here ever had to do that? Couple? One, two? Not very many, hey? If we were downtown Toronto right now, I'll bet you we would have just got a little bit different of a show of hands. Now, is it dangerous that five and a half million voters in Canada are the ones that keep the Liberal government in power? I think it is. But I think the more dangerous thing that we do is try and slag everybody and one-up them on social media. It helps nothing. I have my opinion, and I'm allowed to have it because of the experiences that I've had, but whatever you do, try and get yourself into somebody else's shoes and experience life how they have before you start slagging them, calling them names, and trying to one-up them on social media. Because all we're ever going to do to each other if we keep doing that is just keep pushing this divide farther and farther away from each other. That's all I got for you tonight, folks. There's always one prima donna, and his name is Vance Crow. Oh, there he is, sneaking in. It's funny, I don't know, is Dave Schneider hiding in the crowd anywhere? Did he make it tonight? Maybe he didn't. He gave me this, he gave me this to wear, and then I left it on the chair the entire time. And I'm like, well, I should probably at least wear it up one, one second. My wife knows I, I overheat very easily, so... Either way, this is the second portion of what we do, okay? This is, this is my fun part. Um, I was saying to Vance and Q last night, it kind of reminds me, you know, now that I start to, like, build these and, and kind of mess around with them in my mind and then put them out for you folks to enjoy or criticize or, you know, everything else in between. Uh, it remind, kind of reminds me of a TEDx talk. I think a lot of people in the room would know the TEDx talks, uh, followed by my favorite portion is the roundtable. It's led by you. And I just try and steer the ship wherever you want it to go. But before we get there, I want to do what we did last time with Q, because I, I already know there's somebody from Manitoba in the audience. So I want everybody to stand up. So wherever you are, at, stand up. I'm, I'm always curious about uh, where you're from. So if you're from Lloydminster, the city of Lloydminster, you can sit down. If you're from 50 kilometers away, Sit down. If you're from 100 kilometers away, you can sit down. 200? 250? I've got a slip tank in my truck if you guys need it when you leave. It's farm fuel. And I have to preface this. This is this what God pointed out last time. I don't mean if you were born in Newfoundland and live in Lloydminster. Just point that out. I'm, I'm looking at Steve. I'm just... <laughs> this happened last time, too. Um, 300. 400. 500. Okay, we, we got a couple. can kind of see 500. Shit, I've got some spare tires if you guys need them to get back to. We got one left? No, we got a couple. 550. Uh, 550 in the corner. Where are you from? <laughs> See, I told you, didn't I? In the, in the back corner, where we got two. Are you guys the same married couple? Married couple? Okay. How far away are you from? Southern Manitoba. Oh, it's Doug. Hey, good to see you again. 
How, how far? How many K? How, how, how far did you come? How many? About a thousand. There you go. Hey. Thanks for coming, you guys. I don't know what I'm more shocked about that you openly admit you're from Manitoba or that Vance knows who you are. I don't know. Manitoba and I. It's right there. So I love doing it because I, I get to share this experience with podcast guests, right? All these guys have been on the podcast. And uh, this is a brainchild as I, I let off uh, of, of being on doing all these different episodes. So it's something that I've like in my head, I'm like, oh, yeah, this will work. This will work. And then we sat here in November and had people from Abbotsford and Dawson Creek, right? And now we got them coming from Manitoba. And I'm like, something we're doing is working. Something on the podcast with these men and others, right? It isn't, you know, I, I was just joking. The women have been kicking ass lately uh, on the podcast. There's been lots of interesting ladies come on. But regardless, something's attracting you all. So I appreciate uh, whether you drove 5K across uh, Lloydminster or came, you know, a thousand kilometers. Either way, uh, to come out on a Sunday night when you certainly could have been at home, I don't know, watching the new uh, Last of Us episode, I think is the big thing, right? Because it was made in Calgary anyways. Um, but to come here and sit and listen to a group of guys talk, um, it's just really cool. So uh, if I could give you all a round of applause, I would. So either way, I appreciate uh, all of you coming out and doing this. That being said, folks, the next roughly hour, it's 8.24, I'll try and have you out of here by 9.30, unless everybody keeps telling us to go, is exactly what you've done. And so the first question is the urban population controls the votes. Rural vote is insignificant now. Thoughts? Yeah, so, Q. Do we just jump in or what? Yeah, I don't know how it works. Do we rock, paper, scissors? or? Well, and I maybe should lay the ground rules. It's no different <laughs> than when we're sitting around the table last night. You know, we're, we're sitting there having uh, Q stops by the house. And Vance is at the house, and, and we sit there and just have a friendly old conversation. This is no different. You feel called to speak? Speak. You, you want to sit and let somebody else do the talking? I'm good with it. I guess the bigger part of the problem that I have, and, and that's we, we can't get to a point where we think that our votes don't matter. You know, and I think that's a, that's a big part of what we saw in our last mid-pandemic election that was called here. So we have 27 and a half million eligible voters that unfortunately I put this in my comedy show because it's just shit that you can't write. You know, uh, we have 27 and a half million eligible voters in the country of Canada and 62% showed up to vote. Th that's a lot of people that just think that their vote doesn't matter or don't want to go to go vote or maybe they're too you know upset to go vote. I think one of the most important things that we'll ever do uh, you know, as, as people who live in, in a democracy is, is to go cast your vote. As far as I'm concerned, when I go vote, uh, I, might not, I might not have a selection on the ballot whatsoever that I want to choose, but I, I need to go and try and make the choice of who's going to represent me the best in, uh, in my local riding that gives me the permission, as far as I'm concerned, is to criticize the government that's in power. But at the same time, the person that I did vote for, if they get elected, that gives me the right to, to criticize them. It's, it's their job to represent us, and you need to let them know that they're not doing a good job of it. And I think the most important thing that we will ever do in a democracy is to go cast a ballot. It's, it's, it's what a lot of people thought wars to get us to do. Yeah, I'll... I'll is this on? Is this on? Yeah. It'll turn you up. Right? Yeah. Um, I'll just add that, like, I, I, I sort of identify as that, uh, that person that doesn't care to vote like that's the feeling i have uh just because it just seems like to me that 
uh, over time, things just trend away from rationality to just absolute absurdity uh, in the economy and in, in, in politics. But I, you know, I always joke to my, in, my in-laws, especially uh, my uh, father-in-law, Brock Blakely. Some of you guys might know him. He actually uh, worked in Lloyd for many years. <laughs> He's a hardcore UCP guy. Uh, he, he, you know, he's threatening to disown me if I don't go vote and the like. But I always joke around that I, I won't do it. Uh, because of that, like I do, I sort of feel like a lot of, uh, I'm, I'm sure a lot of Canadians, even my age, sort of feel um, in my mid-30s. Like it just seems like no matter what happens, it just gets worse. But I mean, I've always said uh, to my family, like I'll, I'll do my duty because I respect uh, my ancestors who went to war over this stuff. And not to do that would just be, I consider it would be a little disrespectful, but I definitely feel the way that you're saying that I think a lot of Canadians feel. Um, it, it doesn't seem like there's a, a sensible, you know, path forward in a lot of cases. So, I think one of the great hijackings of, uh, that happened through the media is that it is, at least in the United States, we have like this federalist system. So really we vote on everything all the way down to county supervisor, mayor, these kinds of things. I think it's similar for you. But the great media trick that they did is it is really expensive to cover local elections. So they tell you the only one that matters is the national one. And as far as the golden goose goes, that's true. Those are the only ones that get to print the money. But in my community, the person that locked me down was not the president of the United States. It was the county supervisor that came in or the county executive. And frankly, like I hadn't voted. I, I was like, this is a stupid election. What do I care about this? And then all of a sudden they declare essentially martial law. And like now they can lock me in my house. And that was a great civics lesson on why local elections really matter. And uh, th th so to me, like I am disillusioned by the national elections. And I think the media is perfectly happy to tell you that is the one that matters. But the one that matters to me is the one that's closest to me. Very good point. The, the American system, one thing I, I like about it is that the states seem to have more independence and more ability to conduct their own business, which I think a lot of us here wish we had here in Alberta um, with, you know, left-leaning liberals out of Ontario and Quebec, uh, say, keeping our gas in the ground, keeping our oil in the ground like they have for many years and bo bottlenecking our pipelines. But that, that that's the kind of thing that's disillusioned me, like, no, like feeling like there's been no way to get out of this because like uh, Alberta, Alberta is like the biggest powerhouse in North America. I mean, uh, all my Texan friends that I've met through this industry, I mean, uh, this Bitcoin mining thing, they all think they're hot shit. They just think they're the best. And, and, you know, when you look at just numbers, like we have 20 times the oil reserves they do, like it's, it's, we're bigger and badder and more powerful in every way, but there's a stark difference between their economy and ours. Uh, you know, I was especially a couple of years ago, I was down there and their oil, oil and gas was booming and ours was, you know, crawling along. And it's sad to see. And it's sad to see that, you know, a federal government can uh, do this to us, which, which, yeah, it's part it's, of that disillusionment. It's like we let ourselves be the Diet Coke. You know what I mean? Like we're just happy being lower in calories with less sugar and we'll just hang out here. You know what I mean? And like that, but that is, that is a little bit of the problem, right? And like it, in Vance, it's a good point. I mean, like local elections are very important and, uh, and, and trying to, you know, work within your city councillors, your RM councillors, however it might work is it, it's very important. You, you see it come through the federal government in areas right now, where if we look at the, 
like it's a bit of switching gears, but if you look at the reduction in fertilizer emissions, like we have a, you know, a, a, a policy that's being spread across Canada based on, on 40 temperate zones. Well, I live in the RM of 276 throughout which there's 40 temperate zones in that RM, you know? So like, that's an issue where you have one broad stroke of a brush that's trying to paint a place like Canada. That's where it's important. And I always try and say, you know, like in a federal election, pick the MP that's going to represent your community the best and a lot more now than before that you follow it closer and look into it. And I know there might be some different people with different political parties in here, but uh, uh, you know, I, I hold my nose and vote most of the time. And that should be something that we have to do. I think it's a part that's really broken in our electoral system. Federally, that's the way it is. And provincially, I'm lucky that I have a good MLA, but at times I don't agree with the party that the MLA represents. And so I don't say that I hold my nose and vote, but sometimes it sure fucking stinks. Don't you wonder that, uh, I think, you know, I go back to March. It was almost a year ago to this day, and uh, Shane Getson was one of the first four that came into the SNP Presents along with Danielle Smith, and we know where she's went, and we had a lawyer, Andre McMurray, and, of course, we had Dr. Eric Payne, and they sat up here. And one of the things that I took out of the night is more people need to get involved. Uh, I firmly agree, you have to vote. Like, I mean, you have to vote. But to act like you can just vote and then... See, in four years, I'm not so sure. Uh, you got to hold everybody accountable. I mean, otherwise, they just get to go and do whatever they want. And we learned that. We learned a lot of different ways. I mean, media right now isn't doing what it's supposed to be. I, I can speak all day long about that. But acting like you can just place a ballot and walk away, I'm not sure that's a recipe for success in the future, uh, no matter what issue we talk about. I, uh, I'm, I'm kind of like a, a, a known character on social media, but from time to time, I have no problem calling out. Yeah, obviously, I like I, I run shade at, at Justin Trudeau quite a bit. I, I somewhat enjoy doing it. And but like uh, that being said, there's times where uh, Premier Scott Moe will will do some stuff that I completely disagree with. Or maybe you see a tweet from him or something will come out and I will just go out. But just like just to show you how hypersensitive we are as a society going forward from an election. A, a guy like me named Quick Dick McDick will quote tweet the premier and being like, uh, the, the sad thing is I had to check if this was a satire account who tweeted this, right? And immediately my comment section is filled full of conservatives that are calling me an extreme leftist. What the fuck did you just call me? <laughs> an extreme leftist. My name's Quick Dick. But it, it's it's just... It's it's just so hypersensitive all the time, you know. I think social media has got a, a a lot to do with the reason of why people won't go vote or will just vote within a tribe kind of thing. And I think that's a uh, it's it's. But isn't that why this is so important to have people get together and Absolutely. talk? We we get stuck in the old. Everybody knows it. Everybody's got it stuck to their hip right now. You get stuck in the air and you think that's real life. When I mean, this is real life. Seeing everybody's smiling faces. And I got a lot of things to say about the last couple of years. Everybody's heard it for, you know, 300 podcasts now. But, I mean, to see you guys all here on a Sunday night being engaged, being involved in what we're talking about is a step in the right direction, I think. Which, I'm yeah, sure. let's applause that. There was somebody out there, too, you know, uh, came up to me. I forget who it is. I apologize. I've shaken hands with too many people, and uh, which has been a good thing. They said, you know, it's really cool. And I, I was trying to do a better job of looking to to you know actually like visualize what the first one was but the the demographic here of age you know uh, i don't know how many political things um, anyone in this audience has been to 
Um, but I certainly had my share as I interviewed, you know, all the different UCP candidates and whatever else. And the average age, I don't know, and this isn't to date anyone in the audience, but it was like, I don't know, 60 plus? Like, I felt like a, a young guy. And uh, one of the things they pointed out was how young the audience was tonight, like that there's an actual, so maybe that's a good sign as well moving forward. The next thing that was asked was, how do you change the mindset of the urban population to understand the fundamentals and traditions that built this province? Uh, I have a, I have a sort of a niche Twitter following. It's more Bitcoin related tweeting and the like. And I, I've been <clears throat> pushing around this concept of, I call it learn to coal. Uh, there's a, like when the oil and gas industry was depressed and, you know, the tech industry was booming, I'd, I'd see it all the time. Like, uh, you know, cause I'm sort of affiliated with the tech industry, uh, with this Bitcoin thing, these computers and software and the like and coding and the saying they'd always have is learn to code like learn to code learn to program <laughs> learn to program you know your jobs are obsolete you know there's not going to be any plumbing anymore you better learn to code and these people like you know we all have our own uh delusions uh but they're delusions where they're you know the tech industry which again you know me again money printing but all, all this money printing stuff like sort of boosted certain industries over others, prop them up. The tech industry was one of them. I mean, you can look at that Tesla stock skyrocket. That was that was printed money getting allocated to things like high tech things and Amazon. All these tech companies skyrocketed. And as our industry, like I'm a, I'm a hardcore pro oil and gas guy, uh, and as our industry was struggling through like 2014 to just recently, you know, I heard that all the time. Like, uh, yeah, you lost your job. You know, the coal, coal miners, yeah, you lost your job, better learn to coal, or learn, you better learn to code. So I just flipped that on them recently as I, as I mock them for losing their, I don't, you know, not, not in a bad way, but, you know, as they're losing their tech jobs and the tech retraction is happening while the blue collar, like the, like, you know, the industry workers and the rural, uh, you know, commodity business is doing relatively quite well. I mean, the oil and gas industry is one of the, you know, the energy industries have been a great industry these last couple of years as things come back to reality. So I've been try trying to, uh, I, I never forgave them for saying that kind of stuff, like learn to code, learn to code, because I'm like, you guys are so delusional. So you better learn to coal, is what I say. So uh, piggy, piggybacking off that, just real quick, a show of hands, how many people in this room have used chat.openai.com? How many people in this room? So, uh, you know, you're thinking about how to impact. Nerd alert. So Nerd alert. I saw there were a few good hands, right? So if you haven't used it, write this down, chat.openai.com, because that came out, and it is a technology that uh, you can type into it, and it will type back to you as though it is a human being, and you cannot tell the difference between it being an automated thing and a person being there. And the reason I bring this up is, the thing that Steve's talking about there, about learn to coal, this is real. And the city has not actually had to face what is going to happen when automation comes for them. Right? The rapid rise of, of urbanization in Canada, which actually Canada was the fastest urbanizing country in the world. They, they went, eventually the US caught up, Japan just caught up, but Canada skyrocketed first. Well, the reason was because their, their farms got so efficient and they got so needed so much less labor, people had to go somewhere to do something. Well, what they did was they got into the world of ideas. Only now there is artificial intelligence that can write law, like law briefs 
that can write recipes, that can write blogs, that can write marketing copy better than hundreds or thousands of people all working on it at the same time. And this AI is not going to get just stop. It's going to get better and better and better. And so there's going to be a sea change that we don't even know. We don't have a name for it. What do people do? Do they leave urban environments if they don't have jobs? What do they do? I have no idea. But I can tell you that there's, I have a good friend and he says there's, um, there, one good way to make sure people listen to you is that you help them make money. And if there's any way that you on your, in your world can help people in the urban environments when they're in this time of need, because the moment is coming, that the, the writing is on the wall. Um, and I think that's a, a really important consideration because there's going to be people that are going to be moving out of those cities and finding a way to show them enough respect and help them find a way to reintegrate is going to be important. And I'm pretty sure this idea sounds crazy right now, but I'm certain it is coming. Chat, C-H-A-T, dot, open A-I, A, A is in artificial, I is in intelligence, dot com. Go check that site out. It'll blow your mind. Or chat GPT, just search for it, yeah. It will code for you. It'll code for yeah. you, too, that's right. So that learn to coal is not a joke. That is that is real. Yeah. Can it, like, tell me that it loves me and, you know, <laughs> Yeah. how far does this go? It, it I don't know, write... maybe my search is over. It'll write you love letters. You, you, if you need your wife's forgiveness and need to write something nice, it, it will do all of that. I like on my tweeting where I'm just, you know, shit posting all day. You know, I can't draw. I'm not an artist, but this AI stuff is serious. Like I, uh, when I was doing the learn to coal memes, I wanted uh, a, a drawing of Greta Thunberg uh, eating a bowl of coal. And I just put this into the AI. It spit out a picture of her eating a bowl of coal. And I, I, I made a little poem about eating bowls of coal. Like it was just a joke, but it's unreal what I can do. And that, that, that learn, you know, the whole learn to coal thing, the thing that you cannot, I mean, you can obviously automate and, and apply tools to do your jobs better. That's what, you know, the farming, oil and gas, you name it, every industry is done, but this is now all coming. Like you just said, for the, for the ideas industry or, or the digital world, where a lot of these uh, really high-paying jobs, uh, like over the last number of years, like I have buddies in Waterloo working for Amazon uh, that I that I went to the school with. Man, they make good money. And I've asked him if he's learning about coal. Uh, you should you should read about it, buddy, because uh, there's going to be a shift in the market, and I think we're already seeing it. But it's it's really true, and you know, like when you when you look back towards the industrial revolution and how it you know changed, I would I would say it was one of the pivotal moments of change in in rural rural society. It seems like we've come into a shortfall in the agriculture industry now because help cost effective help is a very difficult thing to find, right? And that's I think we've seen a larger embrace of the technology industry and agriculture, but at the same time, when there's been a lot of people from rural that have you know populated to urban areas. And now you see this start to come down in, in, in cities where maybe a lot of, you know, coding jobs or software jobs maybe aren't going to exist anymore. It, it's, it's staggering if anyone's ever just taken a moment to go to, you know, the, the middle of a, of, a, of a city. I use Calgary just because it's a good example. Uh, there, there's people out there that don't know how to plunge a fucking toilet. And, and like these are people that that get paid a, an obscene amount of money to to code and to do all these different jobs. When it just comes down to basic trades, uh, like where does your shit go when you flush the toilet? 
But this, this is this is this 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 divide that we got, or whether you want to call it urban rural or what it is. But I mean, we just get we we just get so lost and out of touch with reality of the technology and the ease that's been brought into our life, which is, I guess, what I kind of tried to say in my talk a little bit is we're all kind of guilty by association of it. Uh, even like my canola seed, I learned a lesson of where our canola seed comes from when I was at a beekeepers event this year, and it's just shit that shows up that you take for granted and. We just don't know where it comes from. So you think they want it? Like what's coming? And I hope I'm not being too cryptic in that. The, we assume through social media and everything else that they just hate agriculture. They hate guns. They hate, you know, I can probably list off a few others. You get the point. But you guys just told me that there is a thing that thinks faster than I can and can apologize to my wife and we might... That's right, better than I can. So what's to say they aren't already doing that and fooling us all? And do you think the, the urban population then is sitting there just going about their day and they're worried about, you know, getting Molly to the day home and getting on to work and whatever else and, and you know, trying to bring them into the conversation of like, this is what's coming. Or maybe they... Think exactly like we do, but the AI chatbots and everything else are telling us different. I, I think uh, there is a book uh, written by a guy named David Graeber called Bullshit Jobs. And uh, it's a PDF, and it's actually pretty fun to read. But, Seems like he wrote it on my farm. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So Bullshit Jobs is actually this guy pointing out that office work um, has already been automated. And he's like, look, you, you know, you used to need hundreds of accountants, but now you have Excel and that can, one person can do the work of what hundreds of accountants could do. And you used to have um, to send letters in order to be able to communicate with people that are in different spots. Now you can do it over email. You can do things much faster. And he was saying, what used to take 40 hours now takes people like five hours or seven hours. And the rest of the time, they are participating in a political game which is really about being managed and being a, a part of this larger corporation. And he has a very sophisticated argument that corporations need to keep hiring more people in order that the government lets them keep doing their work. So if you want to get in on the golden goose, you have to have plenty of employees and it's kind of this like give and take. And the thing that makes me like, when I read that, the thing that I worried about, because I realized it in corporate America that I saw, is that meaning comes from work. And it comes from like being tired when you're done or succeeding at fixing something or moving something further down the path. And so when I see the people talking about, you know, being afraid of guns and being afraid of uh, wanting this climate change stuff, like a lot of them don't have meaning in, the, in their work in the way that people in the world of atoms do. And I don't, I mean, I think we see this playing out in terms of people having, you know, massive amounts of anxiety medications, male suicide. These things are occurring not because they're bad people or because they've made a bunch of bad decisions. It's because they don't have meaning in their work. And that causes people, like Mel said something last night, it's going to stick in my mind forever. You see somebody be really, really angry, that's actually covering over for them being really sad or, or really afraid. And I think that is much of what you see there. I'm not absolving them of their responsibilities for the way they lord over you with their voting, but I think it's important to recognize. 
this whole work from home mantra has turned into a really big thing. You know, there, there's been a lot of jobs in the world that are work from home jobs kind of thing that you can do online and the internet and, and, and whatnot has, has brought this all to us. But I, I've seen it in a few personal friends of mine. And now I've heard different conversations of people having it being like, well, now it's time to go back to work to the office. And they say, well, well, why do I have to go back to work to the office? I do all my work at the office remotely anyways and uh, I've got a dog and I like to cook and I, I really like going to work in my pajama pants in the morning. To me, that's the most terrifying thing that I'll ever hear in my life because it, it, it feels to me like we're, we're programming a society to be okay with just hiding from the world and being inside. And you can be convinced very quickly that there's climate change if you don't go outside and experience the climate. Exactly, you know? yeah, exactly. You can, you can be convinced that uh, that agriculture is killing the world if you don't go drive by a canola field and stop and walk through it don't do that put boots on first it's a biosecurity risk or whatever but but when we stop experiencing things that we need to experience as humans what other end is there than depression well the let's not forget we're all social creatures and for two years you know I, I'm really, 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 I can put as many reallys on the end of that, happy I lived in this community. Was it perfect? No. Do we have lots of, like, what is going on? Yes. But I bet you it was worse in Calgary. I guarantee it was worse in Edmonton. And, you know, we chuckle about it. We, 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 maybe we just glaze past it. Maybe we go to Edmonton, and, and I'm going to pick on Edmonton a little bit. I was just there. And you walk into a couple places, and you're like, what are they doing? This is like a year and a half. This is strange. They're still living in it. Some of them haven't left it. And when I see that, my heart goes out to them because they're still lap, uh, trapped in this dark world that does not exist. It is a false lie that has been told to them. And they're still living in it. And that is a dark world. We all experience that. And somewhere we have to find a way to understand that they still care about their family still want the lights on and whatever it serves. There's some education in there. But they're like, the social part of this got taken away. There's some people in here that never wore a mask, never stopped seeing family. And the complete opposite can be said about people who lived in the densest of populations. I mean, just got to go back to Kate King on the podcast. She was a paramedic, still is, I think. And she went to Quebec and they were hiding out, visiting friends, because if they got caught, they're like, oh, you can hear the cops down the way pulling people out of a house because they're not supposed to be there. We all remember the snitch lines and different things like that. I don't know. The social aspect of it, to me, I can't imagine for, for people living in, in the cities. You know, you just said something. That, this is kind of a non sequitur, but how will you make sure your children that were maybe too young to experience this, how will, what will be your never forget? Because, like, the people in this room are going to remember, but it was a surprise to me what happened in my country. I'm sure it was a surprise to you. But how do you make sure if you guys are – I don't think you're past it. I think you're still going to get it. But how do you pass this idea along that the government will break up people getting together? Like, it's something shocking to people. Vance, I don't have children. Yeah. <laughs> That's one way to handle that, yeah. <laughs> That's, you know, you know what, that's a, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, and, and I think uh, one thing that we really, really need to do as humans is, uh, is, is to make sure that we never forget our past uh, and, and that we learn from it. You know, 
I don't think we can always just be okay. Nobody's ever going to be okay with anything that happened at any point in time, even if you go back to, you know, world conflicts. Uh, but the important thing is that we learn something from it and, and we prepare ourselves better possibly for the next time that it winds up happening. And I think that's a big problem that we have right now, even when we just went through this last flu season here and we've got a, a huge influx again, once again, in our universal healthcare system that we have here in Canada and we have everybody hitting the panic alarms that, uh, you know, kids are in hallways and they can't get care. It, that should be something that really concerns us as a society. We went through almost three years of, of shit and we have fixed fuck all. If, if anybody else was in charge of this as a private corporation, you would be fired. Three people underneath you would be fired and somebody else would come back in and be like, can we please do this right? You have an obscene amount of money to be able to do this and you have fucked it up. But here we are hanging out and the status quo is fine. Not to mention we all, well, all of us have worked in the oilfield, sorry Vance. And if we had the negligence that went on the last couple of years, somebody would be in jail too. And that, that shouldn't go past being said that like there's been a lot of harm uh, caused in the last chunk I don't know if I go so far as to as to as to throwing people in jail, but I just feel like we we are at a point where there's just zero accountability whatsoever. And I don't just think that goes into government. I think it goes into a lot of different places. Go back to even my simple little example of a of a teacher that was behind putting a billboard up that was obviously a, a, a targeted uh, indoctrination of a group of kids saying agriculture is bad, and th there was basically no repercussions whatsoever. The it was like, oh, the, the message was lost in translation and, and we'll do better next time. We now apologize with the federal government for ethics breach and we just go on like nothing ever happened. There is, it, accountability is one of the most important things that you'll ever have in your life. I worship the ground that my parents walked on for kicking my ass as a kid because you got held accountable for being a dipshit, which taught you not to be a dipshit anymore. We're missing that in society. I agree. On the, I think it comes down to accountability, and I think generationally, like when a lot of you folks were younger, um, like years ago, there there was a lot more accountability within society. It's a lot more accountability at the political level, and you know, it's funny. It's funny because I actually started my business trying to figure out. Uh, I was. I remember I was downloading and researching. Uh, and no offense to to Husky Husky. Uh, made my life uh, in my profession, but I was I was there in my cubicle in my hamster wheel every day, <laughs> and I, I even within the 2011 to about 2015 when I or 2016 when I left, I could see my responsibilities dwindle. Like they they eventually, uh, you know, like instead of me being able to choose myself, like what downhole pump to run and and, and when to send the rig and, and do the economics, they started. Proceduralizing that and not allowing me to make that decision, and that was what I was hired to do. And I really thought it was funky because the engineers I replaced talked about that very thing. They used to send an email to do to send the service rig, and that was all it was. And there I was spending all day writing a, a justification report on why I'm doing what I'm doing, and then a few years later, I couldn't even do that without approval. And it made me think. I'm like, what the hell? Like, why is it that this company? Uh, is trending towards 
what I learned was why is it becoming more bureaucratic? Why is there more procedures and less accountability, less responsibility uh, for me? Like, why, like, and I'm only getting better at my job. I'm making less mistakes. Like, but yet I'm I'm getting less ability to do my job. And that that's that actually was what led me to leave the company because that the whole bureaucracy thing got me onto this. I became a gold bug, thinking that the money system was fucked up. And then that led me to Bitcoin. Then that led me to like starting our business. And that's and ever since I started the business, like one of the things I think about all the time, and I'm really hyper focused on like trying to figure out is how do I prevent my business from becoming that bureaucracy? Because that's what you generally see in a lot of businesses. They trend towards bureaucracy over time. So on the topic of like the government, the government is the biggest bureaucracy there is. It's the it's the, it's the le most least accountable organization uh, because of course they have that golden goose. And, you know, during the lockdown period, I, I went through a lot of conflicts with my parents. Um, you know, like I said, I was from Newfoundland. They're liberal minded. I'm, I'm formally liberal minded uh, since uh, reformed uh, conservative. And we, we, we fought, a, fought a lot on the topic of the lockdowns. And I realized during that time, too, that in the past, if we and we've had pandemics in the past, you know, uh, uh, apparently Spanish flu, whatever. Um, but there's a main difference between then and now. Then the government didn't have the ability to send you SERP checks, like to send you subsidy checks. Again, my talk was about subsidies and how you should you should shoot them. They're bad. They're evil. They like they 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 misconstrue reality. And I believe I personally believe that you know there is a difference between even when my parents were my age and now and today that the, if we had the same pandemic roll through, and no matter what you think about the pandemic. Could be anything it could be the black death uh the government should not have the ability to fund a lockdown through your theft of your savings through money printing and the like and in the past they couldn't do that thank you i i do think it's the most important topic at hand and on the global stage is is this is how your money is created and issued through a society but it, like to me it's like even in my parents day when we were still off the gold standard like that was 1971-ish that happened. We fully went off the gold standard. Um, you wouldn't be able to do what they did. You wouldn't be able to lock every business down and then send you a check and say, well, don't worry about it. You know, like your business will come back. Like that's not how it works. Uh, nothing is returned the same as it was for, well, at least for very few businesses, the exact same way it was before the lockdowns. And I looked at it at the time. I'm like, this is the wrong way to approach this. And unfortunately, um, I just looked at it like in a different time, not even that long ago, it, this wouldn't have been acceptable just for the pure fact that there was a time where politicians actually had to hold a budget and didn't have to deficit. They weren't allowed to deficit spend because they would be held accountable. And that's what that's the main difference from then and now is there are no budgets anymore. Like politicians can just spend whatever they want. It doesn't really matter. I mean, they just this, their central bank money printer just lends them more money and there's no accountability. And that, that to me is the root cause systemically of all non-accountability in society. And it, le it leaches into even companies because companies derive their money. A lot of companies, unfortunately, derive their money from subsidies as well. So, Like um, when you start talking about accountability, you're really talking about justice. And uh, justice is one of those things that drives people to being in a mob. Because you look around at the world and you say, this was not fair, and I know what should have been done. And so you start getting around people that, that vibrate with you in this way. 
And there's a time when justice like can be served and you can seek out accountability, but you can go too far. And this is, I, the reason I am so afraid of mobs is I, when living in Kenya, saw what happened when people were afraid. And uh, they thought two guys from a neighboring community, you know, you guys said you hate the people from the, so you were telling me twos that in Saskatchewan, you always hate the neighboring town and all the people in it. Well, these people got afraid that they were um, being attacked and robbed. And so they went over to the next town and they found two people that they thought maybe weren't good. They pulled them out of their houses. They put tires over them. They poured kerosene on them and they lit them on fire and let them die in the streets. And this was a crowd of people. I woke up in the morning and I to hundreds of people outside cheering and being excited. And they were doing it because they were afraid and they needed to find some way to hold people accountable towards this idea of justice. And where I come off on this is, and I've thought about this for years because that image is indelibly burned in my mind. The thing that I think anytime when you start looking around for who should be accountable, who's responsible for this, is the moment you should say, what can I do to hold myself accountable? And I think to like Steve's point about inflating, if you don't know about Bitcoin, you should 100% understand that this is maybe the only way out of the golden goose situation. And two, if you really love the Sean Newman podcast, you should be relentlessly asking him, how are you going to make yourself uncensorable? Because eventually they are going to censor him. It is going to happen. It is going to be impossible to get him on any channel that you know of right now. And so there's not a clear answer for how do you become uncensorable, but the way that you keep yourself from being focused on what should we do to those guys is to think about what can I do? And what I can do is make sure that no matter what happens, I can know what's going on in Canada because John Newman podcast didn't get censored. Somehow we got down a rabbit hole and I, I'd written it down. How, how didn't you get censored so far, Sean? <laughs> I don't know how that's possible. Yeah, how the fuck am I still on YouTube and you're not? I don't know. <laughs> oh, man. You asked how you are going to teach your kids. And one of the things that I admire about Quick Dick, Quick Dick's taken a lot of arrows. But you have. You certainly have. Right, and COVID is not an easy topic for a lot of people. When you when you go to the other side, when you talk to the other side, me and two, uh, me and Quick Dick, sorry, have had lots of different conversations because we fell on different sides of the argument. And one of the things I admired about QDM is he went on Ryan Jesperson, and I when he did it, I was like, what? like, what are you doing? Like it annoyed me. I don't know if there's any Jesperson fans in here, and I apologize, Ryan, if you're watching the live stream. But I don't love what he does. Okay doesn't mean I dislike the person. It just means the show isn't for me. And then you went on Max Fawcett. And I apologize for shooting it out if I'm live because it hasn't come out yet. But we wait. And what I admire about that is uh, a bit of courage to go hear what you don't probably want to hear. So when you come back to kids, one of the things I've been trying to do more, and I do this poorly, and my wife knows I do this poorly, is I, I, I go and I, I interact with different people. I don't do it every time on the podcast because it is hard. But I go to... Un uncomfortable situations, which is usually somebody who thinks I'm an asshole or I have the wrong views or whatever it be. And what social media I feel like is trying to do is put us in these camps and advance is saying a mob is the worst thing because we, you know, it's almost like bloodlust is what I kind of hear out of you. 
is because we're all in the same frequency. And we all think we got the right answer, and away we go, and, and now we, the door we go. It's like, well, that's what it's building on both sides. Both sides think the other side's an absolute idiot. And what I admire about uh, QDM in particular is he, he goes and searches it out. doesn't mean he does it right. I'm not sitting here going to sit and, and talk about everything you've said. But I do admire that. I try really hard because I think one of the things to try and teach your kids is to go into uncomfortable situations that you don't know how it's going to end. You don't know the conversation that's coming. You don't know if you're right. Like, I'm, I'm learning as we go. And that's a very hard skill, and nobody wants to do that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to go into a conversation uh, where I don't have the answers or I come off and I, use, I was saying to the boys – uh, last night, like there's there's certain conversations I have on the podcast where I just I feel like a like I don't I'm weak like they they just have arguments that I I disagree with but I don't know how to articulate it and so one of the things I really want to pass to my kids is like in our world very few people pick up a weapon and go to war some places in the world that's that's commonplace and I'm not making light of war. But in our world, you win by having difficult conversations. And when I hear about different uh, um, institutions, because I worked in a big company, one of the things I noticed, and I, I, you know, one of the things I did poorly was articulated why I disagreed with an, with an idea. So then there was consensus that the idea was great. So then you, you get like five stages down and nobody's disagreed because nobody spoke up. And we have to find our voices. We have to find ways to articulate that doesn't come off making you feel like you're throwing arrows at the other side every time. Because I have to believe there are other people on the other side that not only think like us, they understand somewhere deep inside them that they don't know why it's off, but they can't articulate it, just like I can. And that takes effort. That's a muscle. There's a whole bunch of brain stuff that somebody smarter than me, probably Vance has talked to him, knows all about that. And that goes across all people, whether you're sitting in the farm, in the city, in a different country. To me, that's my thoughts. We should never find ourselves in, in, in a point in, in our lives where we're, where, we're, where we're comfortable with our opinion uh, and that we can't be challenged on it. I think, and there's a difference between opinion and belief. Because an opinion is, is something that you've formulated on maybe you know, uh, an event, right? But a belief is something that's true to your core. And I like my opinions to try and be closer to a belief of, of what it is of mine because a belief means that I believe it. I believe it for specific reasons. And if I have somebody challenge a belief of mine, I have a very specific set of reasons why I believe it to be true. But a, a dangerous place that we'll put ourselves in the world is if we never allow that to be challenged. And you need to be true to yourself that just because you want to be in a tribe or you want to be in this crew, it needs to be okay that when you have somebody that, that challenges that core set of values that has formulated this belief that's within yourself, you need for it to be okay for somebody else to come at you with something that you can look at objectively and say, actually, I never thought of that. You don't have to just shut yourself off and say, no, I believe this and this is my crew and this is what I'm going to do. You need to be able to look at another person. You need to be able to say, shit, I never thought of that. And if there's one thing that's probably the most important thing that will help us circumnavigate things like social media and, and tribalism is, is, to, is to be okay with that. But you need to be okay with yourself and that you're strong enough to say, hey, you know what, maybe, maybe I wasn't right on that. 
maybe I need to experience where you came from, or you are bringing something to me that I've never had brought to my attention before. And any of these other people that I have actually reached out to, or they've reached out to me and I'll be like, yeah, I'll come and do this. I, I want my beliefs challenged and I'm okay. And I'm comfortable enough with myself going in front of a crowd and, and just having them challenged. And I don't give a shit. Because if I was wrong, that's okay. I'm just going to go farming tomorrow if nobody wants to watch Quick Dick anymore. You know what I mean? So, but it's, to me, it's more important to just make sure that, uh, that you explore all the avenues of what leads you to your belief and or opinion before you just cement it and say, I'm not moving from this ever again, right? I want to I say something about parents. So... Um, I think one of the things that happened with Jordan Peterson and the reason that he got so popular so fast is that young people had been exposed to all these ideas that they knew weren't right, but like they didn't have a way to argue against them, but somebody was actually doing it and giving them this like push. And I don't think he had to push very hard for people to be like, wait, I'll go ahead and take this red pill. Maybe I'll take this whole bottle of red pills, right? And see all the nonsense that was out there. And I actually think that, like, at first you're like, ah, that's so good. But I feel the temptation to indoctrinate my daughter into seeing the world the way that I do. And getting her to be like, oh, yeah, those people, we don't like them because of X, Y, and Z. But I know that I can push those ideas into her, and they are as paper thin as the ideas that were getting pushed into the college kid. And so this is me more than anything saying out loud to myself. The most dangerous thing you can do is push those ideas into your children without them having the structural understanding of why you think those things and the nuance, because otherwise they're going to go to college and they're going to feel like they got red-pilled too, and they're going to reject the things that my daughter will reject the things that I taught her and be like, dad was just a crazy person. And so this is something that I think is really important is to avoid the temptation of indoctrinating your own children. I don't know, clap words. So, it's, it's, it's a great point. Uh, it, it's a great point. And that is one of the biggest reasons why I, I talked about that billboard in, in my chat. I mean, I always remember going to school as a kid. And uh, I don't ever remember it talking about anything political. Um, I, I don't remember any of it. I just remember our, our teachers teaching us to, to research, to look into the facts, to see what's gone on, form an opinion, defend your opinion, respect somebody else that doesn't have the same opinion as you. And I feel like that's something that's just slowly been changing. And I think it's been changing very quickly along the tangent with the rise of social media. So what do you do folks when uh, one of the ones that just came in and I, I just saw it and it kind of fits in well, I think is what happens when the narrative is challenged, right? Opposition comes into the, the current narrative. What we're talking about, you can go to school, but you can go to a list of different topics there's always a combative narrative. What do you do when they don't, you know, you're, you're talking about Sean Newman gets why I'm not on YouTube and things like that. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's pretty simple formula in, in the social media world. You know, there's algorithm. I mean, Twitter's been releasing their Twitter files on a whole bunch of stuff, right? And they're not the only one. So what do you do when the control, you know, we sit in a, a country that, I mean, the legacy media, the corporate media, whatever you want to call it, controls how we look at certain issues. Now, certainly different things like this and other shows and independent media are, are starting to come up, but we have other things trying to clamp down and make sure they never see the daylight. So is it just continue to share? 
is it, or do you have any other thoughts on how you you know how how do you get around them trying to control it so much do this get in front of people get in front of a person and get them out from behind the screen behind which they live i've shared quite a few experiences with you even on podcasts of 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 me just running across a person that i completely disagree with and both of us realize very quickly within seconds of being in person of each other that we did not disagree with each other as much as social media would have led us on to believe that we did. And the faster you can get out from behind a screen and get in front of a person, the better it's going to be for everybody involved. I've had that experience a lot where you battle people on social media, on Twitter, uh, usually me, it's in a bit, some kind of Bitcoin thing. And then you meet them at a conference and like, you're like best buddies. And there really is a, a human element, uh, that gets lost online. Um, you know, on the, I, 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 you just reminded me of like, you know, you know, my parents, other people always say, like, look at all the fake news these days. Look at all the fake news. And my perspective on it, like as someone who loves, uh, this, this tool, I only really use Twitter. I don't use the other socials. Um, it's been really good for business. It's really been amazing for my own education. Like this whole industry I'm in is very new. No one really understands it very well. And, and we're all learning it as we, as we go together. And it's been an awesome learning tool for that. And uh, along the way, you know, I, I've, I've, my personal opinion now is that, you know, you see more realness. And, and despite all the problems social media can cause, you see more realness, more truth come out on social content, like you and I posting what's happening, whether that's like pictures of your dog or your opinions, but these are real things by real people and they're much less manipulated content, even though the algorithms can certainly censor what you see. But I mean, I've come to think that, you know, when, when I have a conversation with my parents, they well, like, oh, all the media today, like all this social media is manipulated. You're getting manipulated. Like my, my mom and dad think I'm like in a cult, right? Like, I, like at one point they did, because my mom read about, I was going through this thing where I loved, I was only eat meat. I would only eat meat. I wouldn't touch, wouldn't drink beer, meat and water. I did the carnivore thing. And, and turns out, my, turns out my mom discovered that all these Bitcoiners were in this carnivore cult. And I had, I was like, what is this thing? And all the, all my friends online that I haven't really met yet, but like all the people I respect are talking about this, this meat thing. And I'm like, oh, I want to try that. Like, that sounds interesting. Some logic behind what they're saying. I tried it out, but you know, my parents thought I was in a cult. You know, they, they, they think that 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 the social media like pr uh, creates these cults of thinking that it creates these uh, there's all this fake news and everyone's getting brainwashed. But I looked at it like I'm like, I'm like, mom and dad, like, you know, you've been you've been used to, you know, the boob tube, the television your whole life. And and there's been a force fed narrative to you on every topic under the sun for I mean, for your whole existence, uh, more or less. And I mean, if anything, social media is less, even though there's a lot of problems with censorship right now and people getting deplatformed and the like, it has, I, I think it's just revealed to people, at least in my head, that the news was fake all along. It wasn't, it wasn't like this new thing. It was fake the whole time. And that social media is actually showing all these grains of truth here and there that make you question uh, a lot of the common narratives. But it's being misconstrued as being the you know, all the, all the conspiracies or these people on socials and the like, but I, I sort of look at it completely different. It's, it's actually most of the truth that comes out in these social content platforms. Did everybody catch the fact that he called it the boob tube? <laughs> the, the boob tube. I love it. Haven't heard that in years.
Is that an American thing too? Yeah, they used to say it there. <laughs> so I like I'm like uh, trying to find some way to make this happen, and so I'm just going to interject and do it. Like I come from the Bitcoin world, and I don't often tell people about this because it only makes you a target. Like Steve said. I really think Steve should take a couple of moments to give a pitch for Bitcoin. And the reason I think that is we are actually on stage with like Bitcoin greatness. Like if you go all over the world, Steve Barber is one of the most well-known names for being respected for his knowledge, for the fact that he didn't just stay there and have ideas in the idea world. He got to the world of atoms and like he is actually creating a technology that if the West ever wanted to be free of the golden goose, this is the way you would do it. So I would say Steve should be put on the spot to have to give like a two minute, what is Bitcoin? Because it's a real thing. This well, is what happens when a podcast host comes on to the podcast host. I, I was hoping to avoid uh, shilling Bitcoin. I, I, I've learned not to... Uh, make it a make it a thing at any kind of event like this because it, it does like you know um, also you, you just told an engineer to explain something in two minutes so yeah, go. And, yeah. and I'm, I'm not a salesman I'm an engineer as we were joking about I'm not a great salesman but I mean the case for Bitcoin um, there there are examples the example I'd give is you know even recently you know I don't care what side of the whole trucker you know thing you guys are on I was on the pro trucker side because personally uh, truckers and shippers and logistics and sea captains and everything that moves the goods that we produce around, they are the lifeblood of society. They are literally the arteries. They're the heart and the arteries of society. And I respect that because I can't do business without these people. So, you know, you might remember after that, that whole convoy, um, there's a lot of censorship of banking, right? And I think this was the first real example. I used it, I did a little talk at the OTS committee, the Oilfield Technical Society here in town, um, and sort of brought this up there too, because it was the first time I felt like I actually had a real example for like my local audience to really, at least maybe grasp why Bitcoin is cool. Um, that example was, you know, when, when people were donating to the trucker's cause, uh, a lot of people had their bank accounts shut down by, uh, uh, Mr. Trudeau and his lackeys. And that's not good. I mean, it's your bank account. It's your means to put food on the table. So no matter what, you know, it could be any topic, in my opinion, that should never be allowed is any politician shut down a person's bank account. And I was already in support of the truckers. And, you know, I was able to donate to them uh, privately without ever anyone knowing ever did through Bitcoin. So to me, like the, just the tool that it is uh, that allows you like, cause it's hard for Canadians to recognize what it can do for society. It's easier for um, if you're in, well, we're starting to see it actually with inflation. We're all feeling inflation right now. Like our wages aren't going as far. We all, we're all feeling that if you are, if you're, uh, if you're stuck in a variable rate mortgage, like this poor sucker right here, uh, you're seeing, I saw my, I just saw the bill, like our, uh, our mortgage went up 4% year over year. Uh, I had a great, 1.8 or something it's up to 5.8 it's like oh my god i wasn't budgeting for that you know and and bitcoin the whole the whole point of the technology is it just can't arbitrarily be created and so you know that was you know when i did my little spiel earlier and talked about the golden goose and subsidies that's really my motivation for that's why i got down this path of 
of Bitcoin in the first place that led me to starting our business here in town. And I think I was also luckily, luckily located in the center of natural gas waste in Canada. It just sort of clicked. Uh, so that was just the luck. But I was already down the path of, oh, man, I love gold. Like gold, gold's a solution. Because, you know, I was saying, I was studying this bureaucracy thing. And I'm like, it's all caused by the money system. It's all caused by the money system. And I got into gold, got into that. But, you know, like for us, at least Canadians, like I think that was the first tangible example of why Bitcoin really matters. Because, you know, I just revealed that I donated to the trucker. So I'm probably going to get my bank account frozen now. <laughs> I probably shouldn't have done that. Because I've never really explicitly said that I did. But I before this but i but i did guess what steve your mortgage doesn't matter anymore <laughs> yeah your house is our house now but it felt good it felt really good at the time because i felt like uh and i've used bitcoin in similar ways before i won't talk about publicly but i felt good it felt good that i could do this where uh the normal system like the gofundme stuff got shut down any other means you wanted to like at least help this cause and it could be any cause right any cause whatsoever so that that to me is like the best um example that you know a fellow canadian might rep, might identify with uh and if you again if you don't you know you didn't if you don't like that particular cause just think of any cause like anyone being able to shut down your funds like your hard work the fruits of your labor uh should be a concern and uh that to me um is enough uh, of a case for why bitcoin is interesting technology it's 921. I'm, I'm trying my best to see how the crowd's doing. You know, do you want five, ten more minutes or is it by, you know, everybody's holding their pee and they're, they're, they're trying and they're like, oh man, this is good. But, you know, uh, I totally understand. Uh, getting started late, this is normally when I would, would call it a day. Um, it's been an interesting go putting this together and having all you wonderful people show up. So if people buy it, you know, we can, we can go for a few more minutes or we can well, let's 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 talk for a few more minutes. Sound like my ex girlfriend. I I, 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 <laughs> I say this. I know there's some people in the audience who would love for us to talk till midnight, and certainly this room is open till midnight, and you can hang out, and these guys will be around most likely. But why don't we talk for a few more minutes around 9:30? That's about 10 minutes. I'll call it a night because I know there are some people that are just gracious with their time. And this is where the time cop in me always comes. I'd rather leave you wanting more than uh, have you go dragging on way too long. So it was a question that came in late here. It said, with the loss of trust in societal institutions, how does trust in these institutions become the norm again? How do you gain trust back in institutions? Oh. <laughs> Speechless. Interesting. Stop lying to us, as the gentleman said. Yeah, I think, I think that's uh, step one. Uh, how do you how do you gain trust in anybody? Really, like I think the answer, you know, when you lose trust in someone, uh, what steps will they take for you to gain it back? Uh, I think the first step is, um, depending on the exact subject matter, you know, admitting wrongdoing. That wouldn't be a bad start. Maybe, maybe there's some. I, I personally would, uh, you know, I was very disappointed in our conservative leadership in Alberta that they would go as far as supporting the lockdowns of unnecessary businesses, unnecessary workers. I mean, that is not a conservative view. I don't care what your definition of conservatism is or. 
you know, right leaning or whatever, um, let the businesses decide. And I would appreciate, uh, I mean, even from a gentleman like Mr. Kenny or former premier, um, I don't know, maybe he did. I don't pay that much attention to politics, but I know I would appreciate some apologies for locking down businesses and, and that kind of thing. And so I think there is a, there's a, there, you know, there's places that might've done it right. Like, uh, uh, allowed, businesses, families, people to decide on their own how to react to a threat. And that, that really, in my mind, is, is, is how, you know, it starts is maybe an apology uh, on whatever, you know, whatever one um, uh, topic. <laughs> we could pick up many things like, you know, Justin Trudeau, I'd appreciate apology and Christia, Christia Freeland that you lock down people's bank accounts. Can you start there, please? And that'd be the first step towards forgiveness and um, not thinking dark thoughts at night. I'm uh, I'm not a guy that you can really get my trust back from uh, once you've once you've crossed that line, uh, and that makes it really hard for me to to navigate. Uh, I, I guess you know my my public opinion, my YouTube channel, whatever you want to call it, kind of thing. Uh, I, I I believe trust is sacred, you know. Uh, that being said, I, I, I can't say I've ever married a, a government before in my life. You know what I mean? Like it's, I guess it's a different thing. And I, I just, I want accountability is, is my biggest problem. I, I, I think the biggest way that we ever see trust in a lot of our institution coming back to the public that have been wronged by said institution is, is just accountability. And I just feel like it's just the one thing that, that we lack right now, uh, it, we we seem to live in this strange world where, uh, geez, you can go to Ottawa and uh, and 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 protest your government, and you're you're arrested. Your social media accounts are frozen. Your bank accounts are frozen. You're paraded around in front of your country in shackles, with no chance of bail. But if you're a, a child sex offender or, or a, a violent criminal that's uh, been convicted of gun crimes, you're back out on the street in twelve fucking hours. How the fuck does that make any sense? How, how, how do you get trust from something that that is your institution? And, and, and until we see it, and until we see that like the leader of our country being convicted or charged twice of being in, in breach of ethics violations and, and, and a continuing path of it with zero accountability, without accountability, without accountability, you'll never get trust back ever. It's just, you have to be held accountable to some way, shape or form that's of measure to the people you serve. I'm a guest in your country, so I'm not going to tell you about how to, how to trust your uh, government again, but uh, there is a really interesting YouTube video that if uh, I think it would probably be worthwhile to, to listen to if we've gone all this way. And the video is called uh, Rules for Rulers. And it basically describes how does power work. And it was written by a book by the similar name, but I actually think the YouTube video is better. And the video is put out by a guy named CGP Gray. And in the video, it describes if you're put in charge and you're like the king, right? You don't actually have enough guns and swords that you can personally go out and make people do what you want them to do. You have to give what you have, your treasure, to different groups of people, the military, police, all these different groups. And how is it that the whole patronage system works? And I think when I watched this video, it stripped away some of my naivety about democracy. And not that democracy is not, not the system I want. It's, 
it's a shit system, but it's better than all the other really shitty systems. And so, but watching this video helped me understand how does power work? Because once you have an understanding of how power works, then you can start to say, okay, they're even if they apologize to me, they're not actually going to be sorry. They don't care, right? Like they had that power, they used it. And so what is it that I will do? What will I change personally is something that the only way you can know what to change is if you understand how power works. And I think it's really important to understand that even if you get the apologies and the accountability that you want, one, they won't care, and two, the next one will do it too. And so th this is like that cold, hard, maybe like a cynical view that I have about the world, but I, I, don't, I don't think there is accountability going forward. Well, how are we gonna end this on an upbeat note, yeah. Sean? That's your challenge. Maybe give us two more minutes. You gotta send Sean. these people home <laughs> happy, not yeah. depressed. Thanks for that, Vance. I'm gonna go drink at the fucking roulette table now. Well, there's lots of gambling to be had, so we'll all leave happy. I mean, the positive note is every single person had a thousand other things you could have done tonight. You had people you could have called, you had you know emails you could have written, shows you could have watched, but you didn't. You listened to the voice in your head that said, I don't know, this guy, Sean Newman, he does some pretty cool stuff. Maybe I'll show up and do that. And you encountered all these people. And the craziest thing is, you are in a room of people unlike any other room of people that you get into at any other point in your life. So the rest of the night, you can walk up to any other person and they understand you better than almost everyone else in the world. And so to me, breaking so everybody can ch help chill out and drink some more beers and talk, this is like the golden part that you guys all paid for by listening to hours and hours of Sean, by showing up on a Sunday night. And I, I think it is... Don't leave feeling cynical. Leave feeling empowered and tell Sean, become censor-proof because we want to listen to you for many years. Thank goodness you didn't say golden goose because what a I've learned man. tonight is to shoot the prick. But uh, maybe, maybe it's just the start of a beautiful adventure, you know? Like, I mean, it just... It feels, you know, you can get cynical and dark and everything else. But, I mean, once upon a time, uh, a brother and I biked across this country. And I remember day one. And I remember day two. And I remember day three when I was ready to, like, just pack it up. We're never getting across this damn planet and, or country. And, like, I'm done. And he had to talk me off the ledge. And he just said, you know, every day you just get on the bike and just start turning the pedal. And we'll move a little further. And you'll move a little further. And you took this giant map of Canada. And you just trimmed it down to Newfoundland. And... All of a sudden, you're across it, and then all of a sudden, it's PEI, and all of a sudden, it just goes, you know, it's not going to be solved in one night. This isn't going to solve it tonight, but it could be the start. Certainly could be the start, and Vance is right. you got these wonderful people around here. The room's yours. Have a, have a little fun. Interact with some people. See where a conversation leads to. Either way, I appreciate you all giving me a Sunday night, because when, when, when I sat around roughly Christmas... Vance is coming to Canada, and I told I like I love nothing more than to have Vance on the the stage. And I'm like, okay, that's like 18 days away or whatever it was. And then I I, I text Quick Dick right away because without Quick Dick, I don't know who Vance is. That's how this worked. And 
wouldn't you know it? He was supposed to be in Vermilion last night. And he goes, the only day they'll work is a Sunday. I'm like, a Sunday? A Sunday. I call the casino because obviously I've been doing work here. They go, well, you can't have the Saturday. I'm like, no, not the Saturday, the Sunday. You sure the Sunday? We don't even do things on the Sunday. Sunday, Sunday. Text Steve. I thought for sure Steve would say no. Don't know why. I just had this gut feeling like it was a pit in my stomach. This isn't going to work. Yeah, I'll come. Okay, wow, this is interesting. We got three. And then for the next 15 days, all I did, people talked about on the podcast, they could hear it in me. I was so nervous. Like, how are we ever going to put people in seats on a Sunday night to listen to these three guys talk, the rural-urban divide? Oh, man. And yet here it is. It's happened. It's maybe the beginning. If not, more will come for sure because you're just like me. You're the start of something beautiful because we're all concerned about something. That's what it's brought us all in. So I appreciate you all giving me time. With that being said, it is 9.30, and I want to make sure that if you want to talk, you want to get home, whatever it is, that we give you time for that. So please give a round of applause for these three guys for being up here, speaking what's on their mind and doing this lovely thing that we get to have a little fun doing. Yeah, thank you so much for coming out, and for anyone who tuned in on the live stream, Thanks for hanging out, and this has been a ton of fun.